Hi, I'm Beth Fuller, and you're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast. I know the world can feel intimidating or scary at times, but I'm here to tell you it doesn't have to be. Through the lens of food, we can learn so much about one another, celebrate our differences, and maybe eat some tasty food along the way. Are you ready to do this? I know I am. So let's go on a food adventure together right now. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast and I'm your host, Beth Fuller. This is episode 19. We're almost to 20. What the heck? All right, don't take notes. I've taken notes. You know the drill. Go to my website, elizabethrfuller.com. Do you want to work together? I'm a food and product photographer. Let's take some cool pictures of all of your stuff. Hit me up. I also do all the styling and the editing for the photos, but if you have people on your team that want to do that, even better. If you have questions for the podcast, do you want some sleuthing for culinary dilemmas you're having, shoot me an email. Let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com and tag me in all of your food adventures on Instagram at let's go on a food adventure. Let's go on a food adventure. Pasta, pasta, and more pasta. That's what we're talking about today. All things. Pasta. I love pasta. Pasta is a comfort food for me. Pasta is something I make a couple of times a week. I've talked about it many times on this podcast. I've taken many pictures of pasta. Pasta and me are true loves. We are soulmates on a very special level. I love pasta. Um, I... (sighs) I've been on the struggle bus a little bit with my um, homemade pasta making adventures. I'm not going to lie. I think it's something that takes practice. I have gotten a lot better at it over the years. I have. I had a lot of pasta fails in my lifetime. Of course. Of course. But our expert today, she's going to really knock your socks off. And this is another one of those episodes where we talked for so long and became such great girlfriends by the end of it that um, we're just going to start jumping right into having our guest on. So you guys ready? Oh, man. Lori, Lori's been practicing law for over 25 years in the Baltimore area. And one day, Lori woke up and was like, I have 10 minutes of free time between being an incredible lawyer, an even more incredible mom, a wife, a sister, an auntie probably, because I'm sure she is, and really just a wonder woman of the world. And so with this 10 minutes, I'm going to go to culinary school. What? And she fell in love with all things pasta. Her pasta is not that, oh, yum, this is great. Thanks, mom, for dinner. Mm -mm. No, no, it's an art form. Her, the, the way her fingers can transform flour and water is something that is so beyond beautiful. She's creating pasta textiles. Textiles. Let that sink in for a second. Lori is here to answer all of your incredible pasta questions and mine. So without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Lori Boucher. Hey, Lori, how's it going? Hi, great, Beth. 
How are you? Good. I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking to all of us about your incredible pasta creations. Like you are my like pasta goddess. I, I just, it's, it is so inspiring what you're doing, but now before we even dive into the pasta part of this, you in your past life for the last 25 years, were kind of were slash still are sort of a lawyer. Am I right with that? That's right. Number one, thank you for having me and you're too kind. I appreciate your nice comments. Um, yeah, so I've been an attorney since 1992 uh, and practiced primarily in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and my practice has changed over the years. When I first started, I was doing medical malpractice plaintiff's work. Then I moved into sort of a general practice uh, litigation. And then I opened up my own firm in 2001. Congratulations. So, um, yes. Thanks. Own. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds more exciting than it is. It was <laughs> It was me, myself, and I, but I uh, went into a space with a bunch of other sole practitioners. So we had a nice firm-like feel. We had people to bounce things off of, but we were all independent mm. in, in terms of uh, financially and what kind of cases we took. So I really just wanted to have the utmost inflexibility in my practice. Awesome. And so you completely, and this I find so incredibly inspiring, switched gears recently in the last <laughs> few years and decided I'm going to culinary school. Like, how was that transition? Was it intimidating? What sparked this desire that your, your soul's calling to get your hands dirty in dough? So, uh, well, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing what happened. So I've always been a passionate home cook, uh, but from a very early age, I always knew that I wanted to be an attorney. In fact, as far back, uh, probably dating back till I was about 10 years old. And interestingly, I have a twin sister and she would always say to me, how do you know you want to go on that path. We don't have any attorneys in the family. Like there's no lawyers that we know. Right. And I don't know. I just always knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so I followed that. That was a, a passion of mine. I really didn't consider doing anything in the culinary world as a profession at that time. And so the transition happened when a few years ago, we had just several parents that got quite sick um, that really just needed someone somewhat, somewhat local. And that person was me. Um, so we had to move someone here. I had, you know, a couple people, just a lot of stuff, a lot of hospice, a lot of bad stuff. So at that time, I really had to scale back my practice. Um, I couldn't exactly tell someone who had been waiting a couple of years for their trial that, oh, I can't go. I need to go be at the hospital. So I, switched my practice to pretty much just mediation, which was a lot more manageable at the mm -hmm. time. But by doing that, I found that I had a little extra time and I thought, you know, I've always wanted to go to culinary school just to more formalize my education. So I started with one class. I took one class downtown in Baltimore just to see how it would work. My kids at the time were, you know, in middle school. And I just, I said, if I can't handle one hold class- on, I Hold really on, hold on, You've got kids in middle school. You're dealing with, you know, parents passing away and everything else. You're still working. And you're like, you know, I have maybe 45 minutes in the day where I'm not dealing with anyone else <laughs> and not dealing with like anything. 
I think I'm going to fill it with going to school again. Like you are amazing. You're Beyonce. Well, You're like it's, Beyonce thank of, you. <laughs> seriously though, like most people wouldn't have the driving ambition and like figure out how to file their time the way that you obviously do and did, you know, I just, you got to, well, you got to give yourself credit here, girl. Like you had a lot going oh, on. Oh, thanks. Well, as an attorney, I mean, I'm used to being able to manage my time pretty well. It's kind of a necessity in that profession. And for me, um, it wasn't more of trying to squeeze it in. It was more, what can I do? That's really going to feed my soul. That's just for me that I can just put myself into mm -hmm. that. I'm not going to think about anything else for four or five hours a week. And for me, it was taking a class. So when I first moved to Baltimore, uh, in 1992, I had my first legal job here. I always did something on the side. Um, I worked at night for the first five years as a waitress to pay off my student loans. So I was quite busy, but I always wanted to carve out time to work sort of the other side of my brain. So I took classes in painting and clay. Uh, you know, I always wanted to do something creative that had nothing mm -hmm. to do with the law. So the law is very creative uh, with respect to creating arguments. So if you're an attorney that's going into court, you have to be creative with your arguments, mm -hmm. but it doesn't work the other side of your brain. Uh, so I've always done something and that was more of an escape for me. I'm not someone that would probably just watch TV. So, right. so taking the culinary class was actually just a completely new thing. And I, and I just, I fell in love with it. It was challenging. It was interesting. And for someone who's cooked my entire life, I didn't realize how little I actually yeah. knew. Um, so it, it was a great escape. And so from there, I thought, well, I can make the jump. Can I fit it in? Uh, I decided to go to Anne Arundel Community College because the program was very flexible mm. uh, with respect to how many classes I took and when I took the classes. So I didn't have this rigid schedule where I had to take, you know, four or five classes every mm -hmm. term. So it took me about three and a half years to finish what normally would take someone a two-year program. I did the degree program, which is an additional year over the certificate, but that's oh my what God. I wanted Congratulations. to do. Congratulations. So. That's huge. Thanks. That's Thanks. Awesome. I, yeah, I finished in December my culinary arts degree, but I'm now uh, working towards my baking and pastry degree because it's really, there's so much overlap with the majors that I only need about five or six, what I call the fun courses in baking yeah. and pastry. So even though I don't eat a lot of this stuff, I'm not a sugar fanatic. I, I anything salty, bring it sure. on. I'll eat anything salty, crispy. Sure. Um, but the process of baking and pastry is so completely different from the cooking part of it. So oh, absolutely. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I love it. Yeah. With pastry and baking, you're literally like, you need to really be that type A, drill down on the recipe, get the fundamentals, the techniques. They write those recipes for a reason. Whereas with, you know, the more savory style cooking, it's so much more, you can go off your own inspiration, your own intuition. You feel it a little differently. You can kind of like a jazz musician riff a little differently on different recipes and other people's influences. And, but to me, pastry, pastry, baking and pastry. Oh, I like that actually. That's a tongue twister. Pastry. Pastry. That's a tongue twister. That like, uh, it's part of where I used to say I was on the struggle bus with it, but now it's, I'm just getting more confidence in how to do it and learning those techniques more properly. Like I just laminated for uh, another podcast episode. I interviewed this wonderful, incredible baker. Her name's Vindy from um, Seattle, Washington. And she had this recipe to laminate and make your own puff pastry, which I'd never done before. And I'm like, 
I'm going to do it because I really want to learn how to make croissant. I really want to do like, I want to be in Paris in my head while I'm eating this croissant. And so I learned and it was fascinating and you just go slow and you figure it out. And if what's the worst thing that happens, you throw it away, you know, like that's right. And literally, and it's, the, and it's the, the precision is what I really like about mm-hmm. it. Like you said, it's just, it's very, to me, the science of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't a science major. I was a psychology and a sociology major in sure. college. Um, but something about it, I thought I would not like, I actually liked it's, it's sort of like, if you take this formula and you really are specific with it and you apply it properly, things are going to come out. And you mentioned laminated pastry. That's actually our unit coming up on Thursday is our going to be our first class. So I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited to see pictures (laughs) of what you make. So why and how did you fall so deeply in love with the pasta? I mean, it is like your soul is pasta and I love it. So, you know, I've always made pasta on and off. In fact, it was the very first thing I made for my husband. The first time I cooked for him, this was 22 years ago. And I made him a spinach infused fettuccine. And I thought his eyes were going to fall out of his mm-hmm. head because he's a New Englander, very meat and potatoes. Yep. Uh, but there's something about pasta that is so uh, meditative for me, just having your hands in the dough. Um, I just, I've always just, been fascinated with it. And it's simple. It's flour and water. And um, of course, it's not as simple if you can get as crazy as you want, which <laughs> I do. so much that can go wrong with just the- there, there is so much, but it is basis. It's just a flour and some type of liquid. And knowing how to bring those two ingredients together properly, you can transform them into something just really delicious and even sometimes beautiful. So um, there's just a lot of creativeness with pasta that um, satisfies like I said, that part of yeah. my brain. So, um, you know, that's how I sort of got into the colored uh, textiling. I call mm. it pasta textiling and mm-hmm. just the different shapes and things like that. So there, there's just so much to learn in that world. So I'm, I'm pretty firmly entrenched in it. <laughs> I love that. And so the other thing that I love is my family hails from Puglia in Southern Italy. And I love that you really dive into Southern Italian styles of pasta and a lot of what you're posting on your social media accounts. Why is your family from Southern Italy? Is that where your roots are? So my mother's side is actually from Sicily, a little town Mm. called Villa Rosa. And a few years ago, uh, my twin sister actually had an opportunity to go there and she actually found the little village where my mom's family was from. Um, So yeah, so my mom cooks in that style. My dad was from a little bit more North, but I'm just pretty fascinated with all the the hand shaping. I love the simplicity of the pasta from that region Mm -hmm. um, where you don't need any eggs or anything like that. It's really just the most simple of ingredients, but um, yeah, you know, some of the ancient shapes that are made um, I'm fascinated with Sardinia uh, mm-hmm. another place that's on my bucket list to go to. Yeah. Um, so my, my twin's been all over. She's been to you all You got to hook places. up with your twin and go with her. Why, <laughs> why is she leaving? Well, you, you know, it was, it was during the time we had the, the, you know, some parent issues. My mm-hmm. father-in-law was quite ill, so I, I couldn't really do it yeah. at that time. So it's, you know, it's on my, it's on my bucket list. I'll you get there at to some go. point. You will get there. Are you watching the Stanley Tucci documentary series? I am. <gasps> I am. Literally like tears yeah. in my eyes as I'm watching it. Like, I'm so glad yeah. he got picked up for a second season. I am uh, utterly obsessed. I love, all I know I want to be his intern. I'll, I'll oh volunteer gosh. for free. <laughs> Me too. Ditto. Sign us both up, Stanley. We're listening. We're here for you. We got you, boo. Um, so when it comes to, and this is a good segue into my question, I wanted to ask, like 
I look up to Anthony Bourdain. I look up to Sami Nosarat. I, I try to, I even love Phil from what, what Phil's eating or whatever his show was called on PBS. And now it got picked up on Netflix. Like I love watching chef's table. Who are your culinary inspirations? So, you know, I don't watch a lot of television. So um, I did watch the series um, Fat, what? Yeah, uh-huh. salt, that, that acid. Yes, I watched that. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do watch anything, uh, it would be more like Top Chef or, you know, just seeing yeah. chefs from different areas and, and seeing their challenges. But I wouldn't say there's any one particular culinary influence. I mean, that being said, Julia Child, I have oh, several yeah. of her books and I just think her story is just great because, you know, like me, she sort of got into this a little bit later in life. And so, um, and just really enjoyed it. It was her passion and it was very clearly her passion. So, yeah, I know. I, I love Julia Child. I love, um, the, my life in France book. Oh, I must've read it 4,000 times at this point. I just, her love with food. And like you said, making that the leap of didn't care what anyone thought, didn't care that she, they viewed hers and it shouldn't be in the kitchen. And she just went for it. And her husband, Paul was so supportive and like the love that they had together. Oh, I agree with you. She's fabulous. I will. I want to be here when I grow up and have a house in Provence. (laughs) Trust me. So another thing I'd love to highlight and talk about is your pasta project from 2020. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that to the listeners? Uh, Sure. So, you know, at the time I was taking two classes in culinary school. And I remember the week before everything shut down, I said to my professor in my international class, you know, what are the chances of school just completely shutting down? And he said, there is zero chance of that happening. And of course, that's what happened. So I continued to take, uh, I was taking Garmage at the time, the cold kitchen Mm -hmm. and international. I continued to take them online, but it was such a different format. You know, usually our labs were four to five hours long and we would have work on the side, but they really were just modified to almost nothing because people couldn't shop. They couldn't get ingredients. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we pay lab fees, but people were, you know, petrified Mm -hmm. to even go to the store. So I, I was finding that I just you know, even practicing law, it just, everything stopped. So I needed to do something. And I think this is, you know, something my dad's always instilled in me. And I think all of us was just giving back. So I'm, I volunteer a bit in the community and I decided to maybe just offer some pasta. I didn't think anyone would really want it. So I, you know, put it out there on Instagram. I said, there's no requirement. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to tag anyone. You don't need to do a thing, yeah. but just let me know if you want a batch of pasta and you live in the Baltimore area and I'll make it for you. So within a couple of days, I literally had to, I mean, it just kind of exploded for me. So I went to the restaurant store. I bought a 50 pound bag of semolina flour containers. Um, and I thought this is going to keep me busy. So in fact, I thought it would have probably been a great way to satisfy my internship requirement (laughs) because of all the different things I had to do. So I wasn't selling it, but what turned into a few people became, you know, some frontline workers, some nurses, uh, just, it just kind of went crazy. So really for about six to eight weeks, I, my entire dining room was transformed. I had a capitelli maker, 
I couldn't, I thought I was, oh, going to be sitting here right. forming pasta in my Zen little pasta right. world, but I no. really just had to. You like did a commercial kitchen and like cranked it out. It big time. Was and crazy. the fact that you picked something that required one of the biggest things that we could not get in the world was a type of flour. Like in 2020, everybody was looking for flour, hand sanitizer, yeast, and toilet paper. Thank God you right. picked semolina because people aren't making sourdough bread with semolina flour, but even semolina, like you couldn't find anything in any of the grocery Well, I'll tell you, you could, if you bought it in a 50 pound bag, right. you could probably find it. That's the difference. So people were buying it on Amazon, but if you buy a 50 pound bag, it's, you know, that's sort of available. <laughs> that so was the I, threshold. you're like, well, that was you know, the threshold. I need, I need all of it. So give me the, all four. I'll go to my local restaurant. Do you have four packs? All right. I'll take it all. Yeah. That's awesome. Right. Awesome. Right. So that's, that's just how I buy my flour. So, um, yeah, so it was great. So I just, it was really helpful to me because I found, like I said, I, I didn't really have a purpose. I wasn't mm -hmm. uh, practicing. I wasn't doing my mediations. I couldn't go to school. It was so limited. What we were allowed to do was, you know, pretty much mm -hmm. do what you want and give it an international flair. I mean, it wasn't that basic, but almost. Yeah. So, um, this really just got me through. I, when people would come pick it up or I would deliver it, they were so thrilled to just yeah. have something homemade and a connection. Like, yeah. so everything was contactless. It was at a distance. I had drop-offs and people would just sort of wave when they would oh. come pick it up, but it was just that little bit of connection. I don't know if you remember like the first time you actually ventured out of your yeah. house for a walk and people were crossing the street. Yeah. And the first time I saw someone that I knew in my neighborhood, it was just like, Oh, thank God there's yeah. someone else out there besides my family. Cause it was just, um, you yeah. know, it was, it was rough. So that really got me through a really, um, tough period, which it was for everyone. So for me, it was just doing something, feeling productive and giving back a little bit, uh, really helped me and my COVID experience in the beginning. I think it's so beautiful. And so many of us oh, struggled so much with this last year and we all tried to do a little something i i think to give back in some way and i love the way you did that so i, I wanted to highlight it and for everyone out oh, there thank and you. maybe it'll be some inspiration for someone else who's looking to do something because COVID's still a thing it's still happening we're still i mean even though there's a light at the end of the tunnel a lot of us up here especially in the northeast are still really social distancing and still really trying to do our part and the frontline workers are exhausted so if there's a way you can get back everyone listening out there subscribe to Lori's method and give back in some way that feels or good just to your make, heart. You know, if you're a bread maker, give a loaf of yeah. bread away. I mean, it's, you know, some people have the struggles with, with food and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, write, write a note, a handwritten note to a neighbor. I mean, there's so many mm -hmm. uh, different things you can do. My twin sister out in Vancouver, she is an avid gardener and she's been making you know, beautiful little bouquets and just anonymously dropping them off at people's oh, homes with a I nice note. That. And you know, so there's always something you can do that doesn't cost a dime. You don't need to spend money to mm -hmm. make someone's day. So I totally agree with you. And it's the thing that I think COVID's taught a lot of us. It's really the little things, those little tiny interactions, those little tiny yes. things of kindness really go so much further than we ever could have imagined in the past. So I totally so agree. True. Now your Etsy store. I I'm in love with your Etsy store. I want to buy absolutely everything on it. I'm going to make a very large purchase shortly, but I need to know all of the ins and outs of these spectacular brass Sardinian cutters because one, why? Because you can get a pasta cutter somewhere else. 
that's not nearly as beautiful and as expensive, I'm buying yours because holy crap, but I need to, we all need to know what makes them so beautiful and special beyond just looking at them. Okay. So every number one, everything in my Etsy store, which is called pasta art has a little, little bit of a funny story to it. So I'll mm. tell you the Sardinian brass Please. tool story. So about three or four years ago, uh, when I started culinary school, I simultaneously started my Instagram. And that was really just started as a way to chronicle my journey through mm -hmm. culinary school. So you rarely, if ever, see any photos of me on there. Um, you know, it's funny being an attorney for so many years. It's I'm actually quite introverted in some respects. I hate getting videotaped or photographed, whatever. But anyway, it's all about the food. So I came across this one post where I saw this very unique cut uh, onto pasta. So yes, you can buy typically a straight cutter or a fluted cutter mm -hmm. for both baking and pastry applications, but I had never seen something that cut so beautifully. So I decided, you know, I saw the tool, I reached out to the person whose account was showcasing this um, and I heard nothing. So I really just kind of went into this deep dive and whenever I would see these tools, I couldn't get anyone to share where they got it from. Oh, man. So uh, what I did was, and it's kind of crazy, I decided I'm going to try to see if I could actually replicate this. So there used to be a uh, maker space down in Baltimore called the Foundry. And so I actually went down there, I hired a female engineer, and I, you know, sort of showed her some of the photos and, you know, can we try to replicate this? And it just could not be done. So it's, it's something, it's a tool that's been made for so many years by hand in Sardinia. Um, and it was just impossible. And I didn't want to put money into getting molds and all this other stuff. You know, we had a couple prototypes. And then you'd be on were... Shark Tank and you're like, I have oh. the molds, I have the patent. Well, I'm not sure if I'd be solving anything with that, but I am an avid watcher of Shark Tank, right. by the way. So at that point, that was a dead end. So I just, you know, I'm a, I was on a mission. When I have something in my head, I, I just, I, I get it done. Yeah. So um, I had a friend in Italy who is an attorney. I spent a summer in Florence when I was in law school and I reached out to him. His uh, parents were from Sardinia. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, I don't know what to tell you. These people that do these things, they sort of are like artisans. They've been doing it forever. They don't have big mm -hmm. storefronts. You can usually find them in a small market or something. So literally I just did the biggest deep dive into the internet I could using Google Translate, etc. So I finally came across someone who, and again, all through Google Translate, he knew some people who made these tools. And I said, I would like to buy, you know, uh, several different styles. And, uh, you know, and he said, no problem, we can do that. So when I told my husband this, he thought it was absolutely crazy. Uh, even crazier when I, all the details were sort of worked out and yeah. I went to the bank with an address over in Italy, someone who I had never met, yeah. never did a Zoom session with and yep. did a, a pretty substantial wire <laughs> transfer. But I said to my husband, if there are people like me mm -hmm. that are seeing the beauty in this, and, and I would see, so I would see on Instagram when I would see a post with this tool, you would see all the people asking mm -hmm. about it and nothing, like no information was given. So two months later, I had the shipment arrive and that's pretty much how I started selling them. So um, since I started selling them, I, I mean, I sell them, they ship everywhere. So I, they go all over the world. I've sent them to China, Japan, Dubai, wow. uh, everywhere. So it kind of proved my 
concept, mm -hmm. which I knew people would find these beautiful mm -hmm. and you really can't find anything like it here. So who are these artisans? People always ask me. I don't know because they don't want to be known. So mm -hmm. I really just have this one connection that I work really hard to establish. Wow. And, and I said, I would love to highlight these people that are making these it's right. such a beautiful process. And he said, they just, that's not what they want to do. They, they do this on the side. It's signed kind of like a hobby. It's like an art form for them. Wow. Um, and so, so that's how those tools came about. And I use them for both pasta and pastry. I just think it gives a beautiful decorative mm -hmm. edge to pasta. And then if you make a pie or something like that. So I've used them uh, many ways. I, I just love them. So oh, I sell I seven different styles. Yeah, you do. And I'm going to end up buying all seven. I'm going to apologize <laughs> to my husband and my credit card, but I'm going to make a very large purchase. The other Start thing, with one. <laughs> no, 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 no. You'll know me in about 10 minutes and you'll realize that I go all in as well when I get an itch about something. Um, the other thing you sell, which I think are fascinating as well are the boards there's two different types of boards the is it loony and what's the second one called so the first one there's actually three my three. third okay. baby is about to uh Woo. be highlighted yep okay. in the next week i just picked them up yesterday but anyway the first one is a bula mm -hmm. uh the second one is my loony and the third one i'm still indecisive okay. about what i'm calling it but um so do you want to hear the story behind the board? Of course I do. <laughs> so I teach this one class called Southern Hand Formed Pasta. And it's a class where, um, again, it's flour and water. You don't need a pasta machine, any fancy tools. You don't need any eggs or anything like that. So people that know me know that I do have a little bit of an addiction to pasta tools. So I have these beautiful tools that I have collected over the years from Corzetti stamps to textured boards. Mm -hmm. And I get them from all over the place. I've got someone in Oregon that makes me tools. I have someone in Japan that I get things from. So I have these beautiful tools and I will show them on my Instagram. But when I'm teaching new pasta makers, no one is going to go buy those tools. They're expensive unless you're a pasta nerd like mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. So when I teach this class, this specific class, I wanted to show people how to get unique texture onto the pasta without having these fancy tools mm -hmm. that I have. So I sort of have this whole laundry list of things now that I use in class and a lot of DIY things. So there was one day I was um, posted something. I was putting these different things together, my own DIY tools that I could share with the mm -hmm. class. You know, this is how you can use these kitchen items to, to create this beautiful texture. So I created something and I posted a pasta with it without showing the tool. And I just wanted to gauge an interest because I thought it was beautiful and it was unlike anything I had seen before. And I had so many people ask me, what tool did you use to make that texture on that pasta? It wasn't a simple ridged tool uh -huh. like a gnocchi board or something like that. So that's sort of when the light bulb went off. And again, this was during COVID. And I thought to myself, how can I get this collection of items I've sort of fashioned together into this DIY tool and actually make it a product. So I reached out to uh, someone in Oregon who has mm -hmm. made me things. And I said, you'll probably think I'm crazy, but I've got these things. I would like to send them to you. Yeah. Could these be transformed into an actual product? And that's how my first board, the Bula board uh, was, was, came into fruition. So I um, went through a bunch of prototypes with him. He's lovely. Uh, his name is Bill Anderson. He is on Instagram as Wooden Essentials. 
he's fabulous. So he didn't think I was crazy at all. Or if he did, he was probably happy to do something a little different from all the other beautiful work that he's done. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always going to be grateful to him because he didn't think it was a crazy idea. So it's a double-sided board. Each mm-hmm. side has a unique texture. And once that was successful, I decided I wanted to do something local. So I reached out to Bill. I wanted to be you know, considerate of him. So um, he was fine with it. And and again, I just wanted to do something local. So my second board is again, stemmed from some DIY things that I did. And that board has two completely different sides from the bullet board. So they're completely separate. So imagine four different textured sides. Uh, The third one I'm doing is going to be a modified one. It's going to be one-sided and uh, it's something that I think that when I can resume in-person teaching, people might really like it's it's um it's beautiful. And again, it's got a completely different design. Oh, so, so cool. So that's how the boards came out. <laughs> that's so cool. And like the thing that I, I don't think people understand is that in different regions of Italy, the pasta varies and changes drastically from the yes. north down to the south. And <clears throat> with that, the sauces, the way you're eating it, it, it changes so much in the hand-shaped style that you highlight a lot is one that is so special that needs a special type of, you know, care and love and and sauces. Is there one dish in particular that you absolutely love to make when you're making this handmade pasta? There is, but just touching on that with the shape. So when I teach the class, so there's always this camp, the traditionalist versus the creatives is Mm -hmm. what I call them. Mm. So I teach five very traditional shapes, only one of which needs any tool other than your hands, because I really do respect the traditional shaping, the way they've made them um, in the past. I have the Encyclopedia of Pasta. It's a great resource for anyone. It will not give you a specific recipe, but it Mm -hmm. will talk about, like you said, the different pastas, what their names are. They vary from region to region, et cetera. So uh, I did have a little pushback when I first started doing my deep dive into Sardinia because I would actually have not a lot, but just a couple people from Italy saying, you're not from there. You shouldn't be teaching this. What makes you qualified? And, you know, for me, I thought I am so passionate about your food, your culture that I would think it would be something you'd be flattered by. And I work really hard at it. I work very, very hard at trying to not get perfection, but to progress my pasta uh, skills. So um, the creative side of it, I think people really enjoy that. So when I teach this class and I start showing people like just the fun ways, there's, it's not historical, it's not traditional, but it, it's fun and you get some really great shapes. I mean, if people wanted all traditional, they would never use my boards. They wouldn't be buying my boards to get something completely different. So um, that all being said, to get back to your question, um, I, one of my favorite shapes is the Maloratus or the oh. Sardinian Yaki, mm-hmm. and they're formed on the back of a cheese grater. And that just with a red sauce is probably my favorite dish. I love a semolina water pasta because it's got such a nice bite to it, such a nice mouthfeel, uh, so different from a tender egg-based pasta, which is a lot more silky and soft and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I love the uh, Sardinian yakis. They're called different names depending on what era you're from. So mm-hmm. uh, anyway, that's my awesome. Favorite. We will, um, if you have a good recipe, I can put it in the show notes or we can find one and we'll make sure we link it into the show notes for everyone so they can try their 
Sardinian and Yankee at home because you too can make pasta like Lori, or you could take one of her classes, which we'll talk about. <laughs> Do you want to dive into a few listener questions? And by sure. a few, I Absolutely. mean like a million because everyone wants to carbo load with you right now and okay. are, are like in love <laughs> with what you're doing. So <clears throat> Marie from Instagram writes, I would love to know more about how to add vegetables to dough like spinach. Do you use fresh or freeze dried? How much? Do you have a recipe? All of these things would be super helpful. Thank you so much. Okay, so when it comes to coloring pasta, um, I use all natural ingredients. So it's either gonna be a fresh uh, vegetable puree, some herbs if I'm laminating pasta, applying herbs on, or some type of superfood. And by that, I mean like an activated charcoal or something that is mm. dried. So uh, I would refer uh, Marie to Salty Seattle, who was on Instagram. She's sort of the queen of color. She put out a book called Pasta Pretty Please. Mm. Uh, she is just uh, the queen of the coloring. So um, actually, I connected with her several years ago. She was doing these beautiful patterns, and I would try to replicate them at home. And she reached out to me and said, you know, you know, this is great that you're able to do this. And so somehow we started talking and I ended up doing some informal recipe testing for her. And when her book came out, um, I remember she sent me an email and I had no idea, but she actually credited me in her book. She acknowledged oh, me in her book. That's wonderful. So, um, I think it was a little bit of doing the testing, a little bit of the just reviewing how the recipes were written, um, which were great. But as an attorney, writing is kind of my strength. And I find that when you're trying to teach someone something, whether it's how their case is going to go or how to make pasta, you really have to speak in a way that you're not using technical terms. So I would say spoon feed, but that's not dumbing it down. It's just making it understandable and accessible. So as far as the coloring, um, I always love to use a fresh um, herb puree. And as far as the quantities, um, really 95% of pasta is getting the correct consistency of the dough. So when I teach, I will tell people that a recipe is, is more like a guide. So even I, I really get even concerned sometimes giving gram uh, weighted measurements to flour and liquid because it depends on so many different factors. The environment you're in, whether it's humid out, um, the temperature of your hands, the dryness of your home, the altitude that you're at. So I go over these things when I teach because it's we always make the dough by hand because even if I measure out, if I tell everyone one cup, everyone's going to measure it differently. Um, so everyone's dough is going to be a little bit different. So when you're adding in a liquid component, it's in some ways similar to whatever your weighted liquid would be, whether it's your eggs or water or something else, milk. I mean, I use all kinds of liquid for pasta. So it's hard to give an answer to that, but I've done almost everything. You can use dry powders. You can use fresh herb purees. I mean, last week I did um, a pea puree. So what I did was I took some fresh peas and I blitzed them with a little bit of water. Um, and then I strained it. And then I used that liquid as an alternative to water in a semolina class. So, oh, okay. So, so you're you can straining do that the purees. Anything. 
You don't have to strain the puree. Okay. So if I use a parsley, I don't strain it because I love seeing all the little flecks yeah, of the green texture. in it. Yeah. Um, but this was a particular recipe because I'm actually uh, was writing it down for a class that I'm teaching this weekend. Uh, and I wanted to make it as easy and almost as fail proof as possible. And sometimes when people see little flecks of something yeah. in their dough, they, they don't they like it. Yeah. I think it's beautiful, but yeah. so. Okay, good to know. Wow. All right, there's a lot, there's a lot to deep dive on with this. Al in Maryland asks, I really, in caps, really want to start making pasta, but I feel so lost. Oh, Al. And I don't know where to start. It looks like it should be super easy, but I just have this feeling I'm going to screw it up. What tips do you have for a pasta newbie? Oh, Al, you're not going to screw it up. Try you're it, You're not going to screw it up. My advice would be that you find someone that loves making pasta and ask them to walk you through the process. So, and that's not a pitch for me to do it, but no, I'm available. But you you to do are it. available to do I, it. I do it uh, virtually and I'm hoping to do it in person soon. But mm -hmm. uh, for me, I think it's just finding someone who can get you through making the dough process. It's really not that difficult. And so typically when I teach a class, eight out of 10 people will never have any pasta making experience at all. And I assure them in the beginning, we're going to get to the end. And most people will say it was a lot easier than what they thought. Uh, the problems come in when, again, people are going by a recipe and it calls for, you know, 360 grams of flour and 180 grams of water and their dough comes out too dry. And they'll say, oh, I threw it out and I started again. And I'm thinking, oh no, oh, <laughs> you know, no. if they would have just known that you just need to add a little bit of hydration yeah. or add a little flour if your dough is sticky. So um, it seems like it's really uh, a hard task, but it's really not. So my advice would be, you know, find someone to teach you personally. I know for me, I watch a lot of YouTube. There's mm -hmm. so much online, but for me, the best way I learn is in person. So for me, I could never do culinary school online. I know that some people do it for a lot of different reasons, but for me, I actually have to be physically present to see what's happening or have someone that can walk me through it in a language that I will understand. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And like you said before, when you were touching on the fact that there's so many and things around you that will make your dish come out differently than others. Like the humidity in the air, the flour you buy might be slightly different than the flour somebody else bought in the oh, next absolutely. town over, you know, and it's all these little nuances. You just have to have a little bit of confidence and a little optimism and a little hope and just keep going for it. Like you were saying before. So Al, find Lori. She can teach you even virtually and online. Okay. <laughs> Caroline, Car Caroline, no, Carolina, sorry. Carolina from Instagram writes, I want to make some of your colorful stuffed pastas. Girl, I hear you. What, what are your must have pieces of equipment for pasta making? Do you mean for a colorful, if, if you're talking a colorful pasta, whether Duck it's stuffed pasta. or not, oh, okay. uh, mm -hmm. if you're going to make your own natural colorant, then you would want to have some type of uh, blender or, you know, Vitamix or something like mm -hmm. that to create your purees. Uh, as far as another piece of equipment, uh, you would be sheeting out those doughs. So mm -hmm. this is different from like a, a semolina water-based. You can color those as well. But I'm thinking if you're asking about mm -hmm. stuffed pasta, you're going to be sheeting that pasta sheet out. So a pasta sheeter is nice. You can always use a rolling pin, but there's a lot of skill involved in that. And if you don't have a lot of experience doing that, you know, a simple tabletop, uh, you know, machine will work. One. 
or right. the the one that you can put on the the kitchen aid the kitchen aid too. has some attachments those mm-hmm. work as well it's a little bit more of an investment so i have several different pasta machines the one tried and true i have i've had for over 30 years it's mm. a little marcato tabletop yeah um, i use those when i teach i also have the um the stand mixer attachments. And those are great because it'll make you at least one hand free yeah. instead of having yeah. to use both hands. Yeah. Uh, and then if you move up to something even a little more industrial, like I have an electric Imperia, it's completely hands-free. So, yeah. um, but you don't need all that. But so for colored pasta where you are, I'm assuming you'd be sheeting it out. You would want to have a blender to make your colorant and then some something to sheet out your dough. When you're sheeting the dough, do you start it on like a, because the for anyone who doesn't know, when you're sheeting dough, there's little numbers on on the dials. Yes. Right. So do you start it on like a zero and then work your way up? So it depends on the machine. So you always want to start uh, where the rollers are farthest apart, okay. so the thickest setting, mm-hmm. and then you're gradually going down to a thinner setting. And the reason mm-hmm. you're doing that is because you're you know, you don't want to put a big fat piece of dough into something that you expect is going to come out as thin as a piece of paper. It's not going to happen. Right. It's a gradual process. So some machines, the widest setting, those rollers are set the widest apart at 10. Oh, On yeah. other Sorry. machines, they yeah. might be, you know, a zero. So before you ever start sheeting, you kind of want to look down into your machine, fool around with your knob and make sure you know which one is the widest setting. And that's the one you want to start on. And then you would not really skip numbers if you have uh, oh really so you eight. really go one one two three four five all the way down i do some people will skip a number mm. it depends on how old your machine is sometimes uh the manual machines through a lot of use might get sort of like worn so you could go from eight to six to four to two everyone does it a little bit differently and that's what i'm saying there's no right or wrong way i just was taught that I go through my thickest setting three or four times. And Mm -hmm. then I will go through each one successively until I get the thickness that I want. So if I'm making a fettuccine and I kind of like a thicker stranded Mm -hmm. noodle, I might stop at four or three. If I wanted to fill a pasta, I would want it super thin. So I would probably go down to almost the thinnest setting. So it really depends on preference and what you want to do. That's fascinating. I could talk about this all day with you and we will. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Right. Justin in Florida. Oh, this, this is a sad question. Justin in Florida writes, I recently found out I can't eat gluten and I'm so sad. Oh, Justin, I'm sad for you. Do you have any tips for making gluten-free pasta? Oh, well, I feel bad for you, Justin. My son has a lot of food allergies, so I know it's it's a challenge. Yeah, the um, as far as gluten-free pasta, there's um, I don't make it a lot. So I have successfully made it with a chickpea flour, which Ooh. you can find readily available, actually very cheaply at almost any ethnic market. Um, so you really, the thing with that is that you really have to like the t- taste of chickpeas and it's a different consistency. It's a different there's no gluten developed. So you're going to have a different type of dough uh, without all the strength of the gluten network, but it works. I've done it. I've actually made a garganelli, which is a rolled pasta that has held up. I posted it probably a couple years ago. Someone else just asked me about this the other day. Um, I have spoken to some people who have used the um, Bob's Red Mill brand one-to-one cup for cup alternative, the gluten-free flour. And they say that that works just fine. You know, you definitely want to have the eggs in it. Um, 
but I don't make it a lot, but I, I know that people are successful. I do think that uh, either Pasta Social Club on Instagram has come up with a recipe. Um, and I think also uh, Linda from Salty Seattle does some online classes doing just gluten-free pasta that also has the coloring element in it. The problem with gluten-free is you can find a lot of recipes online but they include four or five different things that people are not gonna have on hand, like rice flour, xanthan gum, all these kind of weird ingredients. So I would say either try the gluten-free flour uh, that's specifically meant for that, the one-to-one, -one, or find someone who's actually pretty experienced in it, which is not me. <laughs> I will link to that, the Pasta Social Club recipe and Linda's um, class. Salty Seattle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So people can, so Justin can deep dive on that. But Justin, there is hope. We promise you there is There's pasta always hope pasta hope. hope. Yes. Always pasta hope. <laughs> Karen in Ohio asks, I wanted to have some friends over and make a few different kinds of pasta together and then split it up for all of us to take home and save later. Do you have any tips on how to store this fresh pasta so it will last? Okay, so again, I'm not sure if she's asking about an egg-based pasta mm. or if she's talking about a Southern style uh, So there's two different ways to style. store it depending yes. on, oh, this is interesting. Okay. Right. So, you know, with an egg pasta, you've got the egg in it. So um, I would say as a generic statement yes. with any type of pasta that I make. This is very lawyery of you. I love this. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> because there is so much, it's just I like know. when people ask about flour, you know, know, there's so like flour is a whole hour long discussion because yeah. there's so many types of flour. And, you know, I buy some of my grains and I grind them myself and that changes your, your mm -hmm. whole pasta dough. So there's a whole thing about flours. So with storing, it's sort of the same thing, mm -hmm. but, um, if I was going to make an egg-based pasta, I would probably store it at room temp if it's not a filled pasta, just for a few hours and then flash freeze it. Ooh, if it was okay. a filled pasta, you know, again, there's different things you wanna do with storing that. That is something that you would store in your fridge uncovered because you don't want the moisture to evaporate and then sort of fall back down on your pasta and make it sort mm. of wet and gummy. Mm -hmm. uh, versus if I have a semolina pasta, I could store that uncovered because I don't have that problem, but I could cover it as well. Um, okay. So it's, it's kind of a loaded question, but I would say that if you're doing something at home with friends, um, you don't want to keep anything out that has like an egg-based or cheese-based filling. You want to make sure you can store it. I wouldn't keep it out any more than a couple of hours. And then if you're dividing it up and bringing it home, I would probably just flash freeze it mm -hmm. and then bag it as soon as it's frozen. Love and that. that's depends whatever you're making. I, I would say that most pasta that I make nine out of 10 times, no matter what it is, I flash freeze and then bag it up. I love that. And it sounds like the semolina style is probably the easiest to, it has a little more versatility in terms of like how to dry it and freeze it versus something maybe that has an egg or, um, well, the semolina, you don't want to dry completely. You can, and oh, I know okay. people that do, mm -hmm. however, that is yeah. the one that I will always freeze. Even if I'm making mm. it 
11 or 12 o'clock in the morning, because the longer you let that sit out at room temperature, the moisture yeah. does evaporate out of it. And so your pasta becomes brittle. harder and it takes longer to cook and it doesn't have that fresh mouth feel. So that's a, a type of pasta that you can freeze very easily oh. uh, within 30 minutes and then bag it up. So when, when you, I was doing my mm. pasta project, that's what my really? instruction said, you know, you can leave it out for a couple of hours, but if you're not eating it that night, put it in the fridge or even better yet, flash freeze it. The longer it is not preserved the way it is, mm -hmm. uh, the more it's going to lose some of its beautiful, fresh taste. And, and when you freeze it immediately, you can cook it two weeks from now and you'll add 15 seconds more from the frozen mm. product and it will taste like you just made it. Awesome. And so when you're freezing it, do you, and this is just like an, a pro tip, are you putting it on like a half or a quarter cookie sheet with anything like semolina on the bottom of the cookie sheet? Or do you do like parchment? How do you, so then, cause so, I imagine when you freeze it, if you're doing it like in bulk in like chunks and then it get maybe stuck to the cookie sheet, <laughs> like I'm, right. I'm troubleshooting. So, so it, dep it, depends, it depends on how much space you have. So if mm. your freezer is something that can accommodate like a traditional cookie sheet, when I make a pasta, I will put a parchment sheet down and okay. then I will sprinkle a little bit of semolina flour mm -hmm. or cornmeal or something like that. You don't want to use straight flour because that will, it's so fine, it can absorb into the pasta. So if you yeah. think of semolina, the straight coarse semolina, every little grain is sort of like a ball bearing. It's not going to soak up into your pasta. Mm -hmm. But again, it goes back to the consistency of the dough. If you have a dough that you've made, a semolina dough that has is too hydrated and it's very sticky, it's going to be really hard. You're going to have to make sure every piece is separate from each other before you put it in the freezer. Mm -hmm. But I just put the whole tray in the freezer, uh, wait until it's solid, and then I put it in, in a bag. I love it. Okay. Pro tip, parchment paper and a little semolina goes a long, long way. Yes. Right. Desiree in Connecticut writes, I tried making, this is a nice segue. I tried making tortellini and feel like it took forever. I mean, it was worth it, but my God, it was tough to do. And my back hurt after. Oh, you poor thing. While I was making the tortellini, I was trying to cook them as I was making them. Oh man, which seemed like a horrible mistake. Can you form the tortellini and maybe put it in the fridge or the freezer until they're all done and then cook them. Well, so absolutely. Right. So let me just say about tortellini, tortellini are teeny tiny filled yep. pastas. And I made, so I, I just spent a week at Tortello, which is a small pasta shop mm -hmm. in Chicago. In fact, it's a highlight on my Instagram. I had so much fun out there. Uh, they've actually, I'll probably return. They, they've invited me to. It was just Wonderful. great being surrounded by people who just love making pasta. So the tortellini production was definitely something I did with someone else. And, you know, it takes a few hours to make enough that's going to feed, you know, a number of people. So I'm not sure why it was being cooked while she was making them. Like I'm envisioning people sitting around a table <laughs> while this poor woman is slaving and forming tortellini and yeah. then, you know, cooking and serving them. But yeah. it's not something I would do. I would always do it in advance because again, they're so tiny. Traditionally, mm -hmm. I think only three centimeters. It's very, very small. Yeah, if you're it's doing supposed to be like a belly button, right? That's the- right. Yeah. You want to fit six or seven on a teaspoon. And that's really hard unless they're, you know, the traditional shape. Yeah. That doesn't mean you can't make them bigger. Of course you can. Right. I, you know, this is where you go from, you know, how much hassle do you want it to be? If your back is hurting, make them larger sometime. If you yeah. like the taste, 
and you're not so worried about the traditional uh, measurements, then make them a little larger. It'll be a mm -hmm. lot quicker, a lot easier on your back, but absolutely they're filled. So you would want to do uh, the same thing I just talked about yep. with reference to filled pasta, put them on a cookie sheet, a little bit of semolina, stick them in the freezer for about 30, 40 minutes. When they're frozen, put them in a bag and uh, you're good to go whenever you want to cook them. Yeah, I agree. And maybe like you were saying before too, Desiree, that like planning maybe a day ahead. So you're going to make the tortellini one day, freeze them and then eat them the next day for dinner because you need to sit down and, and really relax and have whomever is in your house, maybe rub your shoulders and get takeout that day. Right. And then the next day, eat the pasta. Because... <laughs> well, and the thing with tortellini, some people plan a week in advance yeah. because if you're actually making the traditional recipe, you just to source the actual ingredients, the different yeah. meats and how they're cooked. And then they have to get ground up. And so it can be several days. Uh, so it's, um, it's a project. So if you're yeah. really into that, that's great. But if not, um, you know, I say to people, if you just want a meat filling, make your favorite meatball recipe, mm. uh, cook it up and then put it in your Cuisinart. You want to get like, it sounds kind of gross, but whenever you're doing a meat filled pasta, you want a meat paste. And that's, you know, my go-to for a, a meat filled pasta. <laughs> That's a great pro tip. I'm writing that one down for everybody and myself. Okay, Joel in New York writes, and I agree with Joel, are you coming out with a cookbook anytime soon? Because you should. Oh gosh, that's so kind. Uh, the answer is no. Um, I have been working on a small project, but it's more for my family. So, you know, I post a lot and share a lot um, online, but if I post something and people want a recipe, like I've given out my fresh ricotta cheese recipe a zillion times, a focaccia recipe a zillion times. So if it's something that I can put together pretty quickly, um, I share everything. I mean, I don't think there's anything really proprietary about food that's in my opinion. So if someone's putting something out on Instagram, um, in my opinion, you know, you should share it. So if you're only doing it to, you know, for your business and you can't share it, that's okay too. I'm not judging anyone that won't share, but, um, I, you know, I share everything, even from my dough recipes. If someone asked me, how did you make that, you know, uh, harissa dough that yeah. you infuse the harissa in? I mean, I put it right in my post or I do, I do a lot of stories that go through a very detailed process. Yeah, People do. seem to enjoy those. And then I yeah. save them as a highlight. Um, so yeah, so probably not a cookbook. That seems like a huge endeavor. Um, I did a recipe for my one friend, Lucy Vassarfire. She's a cookbook author and she's on Instagram and she just came out with the pasta machine, the ultimate pasta machine cookbook. It is mm. a great book. So it's a book that I've never seen before. Um, and I'm, I'm not just saying this, it's true. It tells you how to use your you know, manual pasta, you know, sheeter, how to use the KitchenAid attachments, how to use an extruder if you have those attachments, how to use a cavatelli maker. Believe it or not, some people have these things and they have no idea how to yes. use them. So I, she had asked me to submit a recipe for her book and I was so flattered because I think she has six or seven books and she said, I have never asked anyone to submit a recipe before, but She's like, because I know how you are and how you work, you would meet the deadline, you would be specific, you would do the proper research and it would work. So I will tell you just doing that one recipe, it was for my loaf pan lasagna. Um, I, the, the process I went through, I had to do the yes. pesto, I had to do the ricotta cheese, I had to do the pasta. And I thought, how on earth is she coming up with a cookbook with all these recipes? It took me weeks just to come up with 
Yeah. Well, one. Yeah. It's exactly. <laughs> I was also wanting it to be perfect for her yeah. because so it's, it's actually in her book. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. That's amazing. Congratulations. So, uh, Joel, moral, moral of the story, you're going to buy the ultimate pasta machine cookbook and you're just going to ask Lori when she makes something on Instagram and Lori will share with you, or you can take one of Lori's classes and learn a lot there as well. Absolutely. She's got tons of recipes on there. Um, and I bet she would even share one that I can put in the show notes for everybody. April from Instagram writes, I saw you're doing pasta classes. Will you be doing more virtual ones in the spring? What will you be teaching? So yes, I absolutely love doing pasta classes. So, you know, when someone asks me, you know, are you coming out with a cookbook? I think to myself, you know, I can either give you a recipe to do something I'm passionate about, or I can show you how I'm doing it. So that's why I love to teach. So I am teaching. I'm currently teaching. I actually have a class coming up uh, this Sunday or no Friday night with QB Cucina. So not only do I do my own classes, I also sort of guest chef on different Instagram platforms and I link them all in my profile. I'm also teaching at Anne Arundel Community College, uh, which is where I got my degree from. So yes, I'm, I'm doing classes and what I teach, it depends on what people wanna learn. Um, right now, the Southern Hand Form seems to be the one class that's very easy because people, like I said, don't need to have any kind of special equipment or anything like that. Um, I will do them upon request. I just have a minimum of two people participating and the cost is pretty comparable to what you would pay if you did a group class with 15 people. Uh, so, you know, people can reach out to me and at that point I, you know, we can tailor a class that works for whatever it is you want to learn. That's so exciting. So let's everybody, Lori classes, April hit her up. Maurice in Rhode Island writes, I've been trying to do, oh, sorry. I've been trying to make pasta for a while and it never comes out, air quotes, that great. It's like, okay, but not as good as the fresh stuff in the grocery store or the little Italian market near my house. Am I using the wrong flour? This is, this is a tough question. Should I be using special flours when making pasta or can I use all purpose? Well, Maurice, how much time do you have? Okay, I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> just kidding. I'm so just kidding. what you get in a grocery store or a pasta shop may or may not be fresh. So in a grocery store, definitely they are not, there's no, no one sitting in the back room making pasta. I'm pretty sure major grocery stores will not be doing that. Um, for local pasta shops, you know, you really want to ask them, you know, they may, may be buying the, the product from somewhere else. They may be forming it right then and there. Um, so when I was at Tortello's, this was a pasta restaurant slash shop. They sold pasta, but everything they made was handmade, absolutely everything. So it was fresh and there is a difference. Um, so I'm not sure why you think the pasta is okay. It could be the flour. Um, you can use all-purpose flour, absolutely, for making pasta. You don't want to use bread flour. It's too high protein. And again, you know, flour is a whole different subject. So uh, you ideally would have something like a double O pasta flour, but even with double O, there's a, a double O flour for pasta. And then there's a double O pasta for or flour for pizza. So the difference is the protein content. So in Europe, in Italy, they categorize flour based on how finely it's milled. So the double O that you see just means it's very soft and powdery, but what's soft and powdery from the grinding of a soft wheat is going to be very different in terms of strength and gluten and protein 
from something that's very, very soft, but it's ground from a hard wheat. So semolina is a great example. When I teach my class, you can either use the very um, coarse ground semolina, or they have one that's called a semolina rimacinata. And it's the same thing, but it's just a much finer, almost like a pastry-like consistency. But it's not like a cake flour, even though it's soft. So in the States, flour is categorized very differently. It's categorized by the protein content. So, um, so knowing the right flour is important, but if all you have is all purpose, it's totally fine. You don't need to have any specialty flours, but if you're using a whole wheat, it's not gonna work because you need something that actually, you can't just make a completely whole wheat. Um, for instance, um, you couldn't use just a buckwheat because there's no gluten in it. Um, so, so flour does have something to do with it, but I think for purposes of just making pasta on your own, all purpose is just fine. Yeah. I think it's probably getting the, um, the texture, right. Meaning like making sure it's kneaded properly, it's rusted enough. And then that it's rolled or formed. Right. Because sometimes if the, the texture is, it might be the problem that it could be too thick. Maybe you didn't cook it enough. Maybe, who knows? But yeah, I wish I knew what the issue was. If yeah, it was no. taste, if it was the dough, yeah, if it was, no. you know, there's so many things that, yeah. that can go wrong that just yeah. knowing some real fundamentals of pasta making yeah. would probably make those problems go away. And that's when I go back to yeah. find someone who can teach you yeah. in a way that you understand it so that, um, you know, you'll get a little more proficient. I mean, it's like anything. If you, you want to learn, there's people that can teach you and you just have to put the time into it. But um, pasta making is not that hard. No, mm -mm, no, it's not rocket science. It's close, but it's not rocket science. Right. Kirsten, I like that. In London, huh, London writes, your pasta is some of the most beautiful pastas I have seen. Kirsten, I agree. How do you get such beautiful, oh, bold colors in your pasta and also to get it to come out so perfect every time? And how do you stay so colorful after they've cooked? How do okay. they stay? This, yeah. this is a pretty easy question. Number one, thank you so much for your kind comments. I really appreciate that. Um, so as far as how to get color into your pasta, again, it's, you know, a combination. You can use dried powders, dried dragon fruit, dried uh, activated charcoal for black. You can make a fresh puree with almost anything, carrots, parsley, uh, you know, there's so many, you know, really your imagination is, Do you is your limit. you feel like the dried colors, when you use a dried, is there a variance in how bold the color is versus if you use a wet? No, I think the difference is how much hydration you need to add to your dough. So if okay. you're adding like a fresh vegetable puree, it's going to be, you might, it's going to be a different hydration level than if you're gotcha. just adding a dried powder okay. to your flour. Okay. Um, but in terms of colored pasta, I think the rule of thumb is if it's an egg-based color, sheet thin and mm. cook fast. So what I mean by that is when you're adding something natural to your pasta dough and getting a color, the longer you cook it, the more color is likely to leach out. There's a couple of exceptions, um, activated charcoal, which is what I use for black pasta. Uh, most people are familiar with squid ink or cuttlefish ink. And that's really great if you're making a seafood dish because it does have that 
sort of um, ocean taste and that briny smell. But if you don't want that, but you want black, then activated charcoal is the way to go. And you're only using it in a culinary dose, not like a medical dose. A lot of people say, oh, but there's people that say, don't use activated charcoal. It interferes with medicine and things like that. It's if you're like in a hospital a setting, you're getting a, right, you're getting yeah. a, a lot bigger dose. Yeah. So in a batch of dough, I might be using a tablespoon yeah. for a batch of dough that's going to make enough for four people. So when it comes down to it, it's again, a culinary dose. Yeah. So if you're going to make a beautiful textile or pattern, you want to really make sure that your dough is sheeted pretty thinly so that it cooks quickly. So if I'm going to spend a lot of time making a colored textile, I'm not going to create something that has to cook for five minutes. I'm mm. not going to sheet it to something very thick because it's going to, if it's going to take five minutes to cook, then it's more likely a lot of that color seeps out. So you want to do something fresh pasta, you can cook it in a minute if it's sheeted thin enough. Okay. That's, I didn't know that. That's a great so sheet thin, cook fast. Yep. Done. <laughs> that's how you have to live your life. Sheet thin and cook fast. That's right. <laughs> right. Jim from Instagram writes, you have, you must have the patience of a saint to be so detailed with your pasta. I agree. It's beautiful to look at. I don't have patience and I am not really a air quotes type A. Do you have any tips for the clumsy home cook who wants to make pasta like you? <laughs> that's adorable, Jim. So, <laughs> that's a great question. So, you know, not all my pasta is, uh, you know, I'm striving to make these beautiful patterns. In fact, sometimes I'm just doing the straight semolina cappatelli. So there's something for everyone. So yes, if you are doing something that is really involved, and for me, it's like art. For me, this is my, my art form. So, you know, I might have something in my head and I'm trying to figure out how to get it onto uh, a pasta sheet or into a pasta shape. So that'll take me some time, but I enjoy doing that. But if you just like pasta and you just want to make pasta, you don't need to have the patience of a saint. You just need, you know, a little elbow grease and, uh, you know, some semolina flour and water. I mean, that's all you need. So, and maybe one of your boards or a sardinian cutter. Right. as well. And that would make it, I would take it like next level. But the other thing, and I agree with you completely is that when I want to do something and that's a little more labor intensive, I like to pick a time when I'm in the mood to do it. Like if you're not in the mood to actually do this, then you might, it might be just a maybe for now, not a no, but just a maybe and like table it and do something else. And when you feel inspired and have the energy and bandwidth to dedicate a little extra attention to this, that's when you might want to dip into making a rose filled in shaped ravioli. Right. Well, Beth, that's a great point because as long as I've been making pasta, I will tell you when I feel like I am under the gun yeah. or I'm not in the right frame of mind, yeah. it's, it shows in my pasta. So I really have to plan like today, I'm going to be doing something I planned for it. I carve out the time so that I know I won't be interrupted. I won't have to run anywhere. I can put on my Louis Prima or yep. Miller and just love you know, it. Zen out and just do my pasta. But yeah, definitely. That's such a great point. It's not something that you want to struggle with. For me, it's, uh, you know, it's my form of yoga. So yeah, it's your meditation. Um, it's your time. Right. So I, agree. I wouldn't go to a yoga class if I knew, you know, I have to be at the doctor's, you In know, five minutes, minutes when it's out, it's, yeah. it's, I'm not going to enjoy <laughs> right. it. Love that. Abby in Vermont asks, it feels like there are a million shapes of pasta out there. With pasta, does shape really matter? Does it taste different? And what sauces are best with what shapes? Abby, that is a very big question. 
Okay, well, let me break it down. So does shape really matter? Um, it only matters depending on what you want, you know? So that's a preference thing. There are sometimes I really want long, silky noodles. Mm -hmm. There's other times I want, you know, the short hand form shapes with a lot of bites. So, um, so shape only really matters for preference. Um, as far as does it taste different? Absolutely. So you're with an egg-based pasta, you're going to get a much more tender, soft product than mm -hmm. if you have something made with semolina, which is going to be more of a built-in al dente. Um, so they do taste different. They have a different mouth feel. Um, of course, Taste can also change depending on if you're adding anything. So if you just have a basic pasta dough, but you really love pepper or oregano, you can just put in a tablespoon of black pepper and you're going to have a completely different pasta or add a tablespoon of harissa paste or something like that. So, you know, taste, you know, it's going to taste depending on, again, your imagination is the only thing that'll limit you. Um, as far as what sauces go with what shapes, you know, traditionally people say that, you know, a chunkier meat-based sauce is, is ideal for those um, shapes that are more uh, like a penne or a, a formed shape or an extruded shape that has a lot of nooks and crannies for all that sauce to get into versus something like a pappadelle or a fettuccine, something that's soft and silky where a pesto might be ideal or something that, you know, all that sauce will cling to it, but you're not, you know, like a carbonara or yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But that being said, again, <laughs> I eat what I like. So, yeah. you know, when I teach, there are certain shapes that traditionally go along with something like a trophy will definitely be uh, is something from Genoa and they will uh, have it with pesto and potato and green bean. It's a one pot meal. It's delicious. But, you know, I love a red sauce. I think I said that in the beginning. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I eat what I like. I, I might spend hours making a beautiful textile pattern pasta but if I pull it out of the freezer and I'm really hungry for some red sauce, there's red sauce going all over that. that and you're design. not going to see so. all that design work. Oh my nope. God. Cause it all tastes like pasta. So. I love it. I love it. I agree with you. And Abby, Lori and I both probably share the sentiment, salt your water. It tastes like you need to have the water taste like the ocean. You don't, Americans don't salt the water enough when they cook pasta. I think that's my own personal. Right. And, that, and that's actually thing. a lot of people ask me why I don't really put salt in my pasta mm. doughs. And again, you'll see recipes. People have like a pinch of salt yeah. or a little bit of olive oil. Again, you know, it's, it's all depends on your preference. I don't because I do salt my pasta water yeah. and believe it or not, you know, people ask how much taste it, you know, you hundred percent salt your water and then take a little it. bit out and then yeah. taste it. I agree with you. All right. So next question, Natasha in Seattle writes, I love ravioli and tortellini, but every single time I've tried to make them at home, they never come out right. It's either they explode in the water when I'm cooking them, or I can't get the seal right, or the pasta is too thick. I'm determined to get this right. Good. Natasha says, send help. Okay. It's on the way, Natasha. Lori's got you, girl. <laughs> and again, understand these are just all my personal opinions based on mm -hmm. my experience. Um, based on my experience, when you're doing a filled pasta, you definitely want to sheet that pasta very thin. And the reason is, if you think of it, a filled pasta is going to be two layers of pasta with something in between. So if you sheet it to the thickness of, say, like a fettuccine or something, you don't want two like really thick layers encasing that um, filling because you're it's like you're eating a double amount of pasta. So when it comes to filled pasta, you definitely want to sheet very thin. 
if your pasta is exploding in the water, what's probably happening is number one, when you cook a filled pasta, everyone says rapidly boiling water, you get your water up to, I would say a very light boil, almost like a, a simmer, a high simmer. You never wanna put in this rapidly boiling water cause it's a shock, it's a shock to the pasta. Um, so when you are filling your pasta, what it sounds like to me is that maybe you're not getting the air out of the pasta. So when you're filling your tortellini and you're encasing them with the top, you really wanna make sure that you get all the air out of it because those little air pockets around the filling they will explode in the water. So there's tips and tricks on how to get the air out, but it's as simple as using your hand and sort of carefully going around the filling and pressing out. You kind of want to think of it this way. You want to start folding and pressing your pasta from one corner and sort of pushing out the air and then sealing it at the other end. So um, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, Right. So uh, that's probably what's happening if they're exploding is you're not getting the air out. I agree. And that tip about the water, because you do think we've all been kind of programmed that you want the water at this rapid boil and then throw any kind of pasta in and then you just hope, but it makes a lot of sense for a filled pot. They're a little more delicate anyway, that that makes a lot of right. sense. And most of my pasta, tip. I just do what I call it kind of like a high simmer. So there's bubbles mm. moving, you see some of the mm. agitation, but it's not this, you know, full on boil. boil. Right. Right. Andrea from Canada writes, I've tried rolling out pasta on the back of a fork or on a little wooden board, but I can't get that. Another air quotes. I love it. The flick of the wrist. Right. You guys make it look so easy by you guys. She means Lori. Do you have any tips to get this just right? So I'm not sure what the flick of the wrist means. If you mean the actual forming the pasta on the fork or the board, yeah. uh, then you definitely want to apply enough pressure so that you're getting the texture on without flattening it. So, right. uh, you know, so again, that just takes a little bit of practice, but I know on Instagram, there's people that will form their pasta and then they do kind of flick it off the board. Yeah. And I think that's just more for the showmanship of doing it, gotcha. but anytime you're using the back of the fork or a gnocchi board or anything with um, that you're imparting texture on, you just want to try to find the right pressure and it takes mm. a little practice. I love that. The, the right other balance. thing I want to point out too, yeah. is it could be that your dough is sticky. Again, I'm not sure what the, mm -hmm. what, if you're saying flicking it off, if you have a very um, hydrated dough, it's going to stick to any surface and it's going to be a little more difficult to work with. So again, the dough consistency is 95% of making, you know, yourself yeah. pasta empowered. Well, this is a great segue. Sean in New Jersey asked, do you know when you've kneaded the dough enough? Or when, sorry, when do you know when you've kneaded the dough enough? So, you know, again, depending on the type of dough you're making, mm -hmm. um, you want to make sure your dough will literally transform under your hands. So in the first few minutes, it's going to be sort of a shaggy mess. And as you start kneading, it's going to look almost cratered. And, you know, you want to knead it to a point where you actually have a pretty nice, soft, um, non-sticky texture to it. So um, if it comes to an egg dough, it's uh, going to have some texture on it, but it, you want it to be pretty smooth. Um, and then with a semolina dough, it's actually going to be very silky smooth when you're finished kneading it. Some people talk about the finger test where you would put your finger in the dough ball, just sort of a little bit of pressure. And if it comes up a little bit, like halfway back, then you know that you've developed your gluten enough. 
Um, I, I don't think it's possible to over need your dough, but I don't think anyone's going to want to need dough for an hour. So, um, <laughs> unless you're you know, really mad at the world and you're just really right, in the zone and right. needing it out. Right. And again, this all depends on whether or not you're doing the entire process by hand, or if you're using a food processor versus a stand mixer, all of which can be used to make dough, all of which have different timing and methods to know when your dough is done. But ultimately, um, you know, you want something that's going to be pretty smooth, not, you know, maybe a little tacky, but not sticky. And so that means if you're kneading the dough and your hands are picking up any kind of the dough on your hands, you just need to add a little more flour. You literally should have clean palms when you're kneading your dough, what is properly hydrated. I love that clean palms. I love this question. Ja from Instagram writes, I've always dreamed of quitting my job and doing something else, but I'm scared. How did you make the leap? Do you wish you did it sooner? So that's a big question because you need to ask yourself, if I quit my job, am I able to sustain myself financially? So that's, you know, that's a big, big question. If you want to quit your job and pursue something different, whatever it is, I don't think it's ever too late to do it. I mean, you know, again, something my dad always taught me um, you know, carpe diem, you know, now is the time to do it. So if you have the time and you have the resources and the family uh, lifestyle situation where you can pursue something and it doesn't necessarily have to be an all or nothing. So while I was going to school, I was still practicing law, which was my day job. So, um, I'm transitioning a little bit just because I'm getting a little more busy with my food experiences versus my, my legal experiences. So, um, again, I started small. I took one class. I wanted to see how it would fit in. I wanted to see how I would feel. Would it make my life better? Would it enrich my life? Or is it going to be just one more hassle? So because it was all the other things I pursued it. I love that. And like you just said, carpe diem, just sometimes you just gotta take the, the risk. If you, if you can, if your heart's being called to it, it's happening for a reason, maybe dip your toe right. in it and, and, then, right. and then dive in. Um, we kind of already touched on Antonia's question from Colorado, but she writes, do you like to use a KitchenAid mixer or other machines when rolling out pasta? Well, I will tell you that when I am teaching pasta, I always do it by hand because I do believe that for, again, I teach a lot of new pasta makers. They need to understand what the dough feels like. Uh, but when I am home, I will tell you nine out of 10 times I'm using a stand mixer or um, a food processor to bake my dough. It's so much quicker. It's so much easier and it preserves my wrists. Yeah, I know. And you make a lot of dough sister. <laughs> Lisa from New Hampshire writes, how do you know when you've rolled out the pasta thin enough for noodles? Is there something I should be looking for? I feel like I'm doing this wrong. So uh, you know that you have rolled out your noodles thin enough when they are the thickness that you like. <laughs> so it seems Great like I'm answer. avoiding that question. But if I'm making a soup and I'm doing uh, soup noodles, I, I want them a little thicker. Um, I like a thicker noodle. Some people like very, very thin noodles, but to me, uh, the mouthfeel, they're too soft. So I like a thicker noodle because it has a little more substance and, and mouthfeel to it. So there's no right or wrong 
answer to, you know, whether your noodles are too thin. The only time I would say it's an issue is again, if you're making a filled pasta, you don't want to have them rolled out so thick because again, it's two layers when you're filling a pot, a, a, a filled pasta. So uh, that's the only time you really want to make sure it's as thin as you can get it. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's because some people will always say you want to roll it out and then be able to read the newspaper. And you hold up right. the dough and you can read the news. I mean, that's a thin, that's a thin noodle. It's pretty thin. Yeah. Yep. But you're right. Teach their own. I mean, if you like a thick noodle, you like a thick noodle. There's Absolutely. nothing wrong with that. Um, okay. Carrie Ann in Austin asks, does it matter which brand of flour I use? What are your favorite brands of flour? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's like choosing a favorite child, Carrie Ann. I'm just kidding. Right. So, um, you know, I use so many different flours. And like I said, I, from all purpose to double O to Mm -hmm. whole wheat mixes, rye, I buy grains. I, you know, will grind them myself to add something different. There's a a local farm nearby um, that I buy different flours from. So I, does it matter? It doesn't really matter the brand, but it's something that you want to be reliable. So uh, King Arthur makes a really good all-purpose flour. So that mm-hmm. would be a good brand. Um, as far as the Italian flowers, there's so many different kinds. Um, I like the Caputo brand, C-A-P-U-T-O. So that is the fine sifted semolina brand that I recommend to people when they do the Southern hand form class. It's the real fine powder, but it's, it's, definitely good quality. Um, I do get flour from some mills out West. So, uh, you know, all different, I source flour from so many different places, but I would say King Arthur for all purpose and for any type of Italian flowers, the Caputo brand is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And you can get both pretty much anywhere that those are the two that I use the most. Right. Um, Philip from Instagram writes, I tried making homemade pasta the other day and it all stuck together. I tried dusting it with flour, but it was a mess. Oh, he tried to make homemade spaghetti. Sorry. What should I do once the pasta has been cut into its shape? We kind of touched on that already. Um, This is a great question. Yeah. (laughs) So let me tell you the secrets to this. Okay. So if you are making spaghetti, then you are either rolling out a pasta sheet or putting it through a sheeter Mm -hmm. to get the sheet. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing that, you want to lay that sheet out on either a flour sack or some type of towel and let that pasta sheet dry until it's almost like a leather-like consistency. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that. So you don't cut it right away. No, because as soon as you sheet the dough, it's, it's, you could bunch it up in your hands and make another dough ball. If you cut it just like that, it's all going to stick together. So you definitely want to let them dry or temper. What I do is I put the sheets out on, again, a flour sack or some type of towel, a pillowcase, anything. And then I flip them after about five, 10 minutes. And as soon as it becomes sort of like leather, then you can either put it through your machine or you can hand cut. But the second thing you want to do, whether you're putting it through a machine or hand cutting it, is put some semolina flour on it. Again, not the soft flour, but the semolina, the coarse ground. It's not going to absorb into that sheet, particularly if that sheet is now like a piece of leather. So that's how you avoid all your noodles sticking together. The wetter your dough is, the more likely it's all gonna clump together. So sheet it out, set it out somewhere, let it dry 10, 15 minutes, both sides, flip it over. And as soon as it's like leather, almost like a... um, 
like a fruit roll-up type mm-hmm, mm-hmm, consistency. Mm-hmm. Then you put it through whatever cutter attachment you have, or you can very gently roll it into thirds and hand cut it with a knife into the size that you want. I wish people could see my face because I am, I had no idea that you were supposed to let it dry. Some people don't. I have seen people that just put all kinds of flour all over them. So flour will get absorbed into the dough. And again, this is just how I do it. Everyone does it a little differently. And I don't want to say that someone's doing it wrong. But if you're putting all purpose or some type of soft flour on a wet pasta sheet, Mm -hmm. it's going to absorb in the pasta and you're going to have to keep doing it. And then you have kind of a gummy sheet of pasta. You don't want to add too much more flour to it. So, um, you know, that's what I do. I never put it through a cutter until it's Mm. almost, you know, not brittle, but like, you know, still malleable, but like dryish to the touch. I love it. Now I want a fruit roll up. Um, Jen and (laughs) Jen in Michigan asks, are certain herbs better to put into pastas than others? What are your favorites? And you've kind of talked about parsley and, um, I mean, spinach cilantro. Is yeah, cilantro. Well, well, let me tell you the, the trick with that. So with laminating your pasta sheet, and by mm-hmm. that, I mean, applying different herbs. So the big trick with that is you want to use young, tender herbs. You uh-huh. don't want to use anything sharp or woody. So um, you wouldn't want to use um, rosemary, for instance, because it's like a needle that's going to pierce your sheet. So uh, parsley, you would want to use the Italian flat leaf, not the curly, because the curly is, you know, again, it's just too bulky. So I love putting oregano. I like basil, um, chives. I mean, really anything. Dill, I have fresh dill. It's so soft. You can just pick off the little sprigs and Mm. put it on. And that's a really nice, like an accompaniment if you're making like a salmon dish and you want to do a little pasta tossed in with that. Mm -hmm. Um, So you want to use very small, like baby herbs, microgreens, anything soft and tender and you don't want to put any stems on your pasta sheet because the stems can pierce too so if you're using something a little more mature you want to just pinch the stem off of it that's awesome gosh i am starving okay stephanie and i'm just like listening to you dreamily talk about pasta i'm loving it um stephanie from instagram writes i bought a few pasta stamps and a board to roll pasta on what should I use the stamps versus the board or when should I, sorry, when should I use the stamps versus the board? So I'm not clear about what a pasta stamp is. Uh, if you mean a Corsetti stamp, which is a round two piece pasta tool where you make sort of like a pasta medallion, um, that's different from a board, well, maybe a Cavarola board that has a textural design on it. Um, so again, it depends what you're making. So with a Cavarola board, which is kind of like a small, um, cutting board that has a a unique design on it, you can actually take your fresh pasta sheet, put it on the board, roll over it, and then you'll get a pasta sheet that has the whole thing has a design on it. And from that, you can cut, you know, either long strips or you can fashion little farfales out of it. So it depends on what you're making. Um, I have used my Corsetti stamps to make ravioli before. So uh, if you want to make a a ravioli that has a very cool design on it from your Corsetti stamp, you would just stamp your dough with your Corsetti stamp and then use a cookie cutter that's a slightly larger, cut out that textured piece and then, you know, use a plain piece, put your filling on it and then put your textured piece on top. Make sure you get the air out and just seal it. Wow. So all kinds of stuff. I love it. Okay. (laughs) Just two more questions. 
Okay. What are you, and this is, we're done with the listener questions. This is for me. What are you really excited about cooking in your own home kitchen right now? You talked about baking and laminating. You're very excited about that. That's coming up. Well, the baking is fun. Um, I actually love so many different types of cuisine, but probably one of my favorites is, is Asian food. So I make quite a bit of dumplings and I use a lot of the same techniques when it comes to pasta. So you can naturally color and make your own dumpling skins. It's a completely different type of dough. Um, so you have a lot of creativeness with what you fill it with. Um, I like making my own Asian noodles, udon, things like that. Again, a whole different type of dough. I like making my own uh, broth for pho. So I, I love Asian food. I can't get enough of it. Me too. So I just, that's what I'm excited about. I love that. I'm doing a deep dive right now on Indonesian cuisine and it is oh yum. fascinating. And it's like the lemongrass and the symbols that you're, there's like 15 oh, different yes. kinds of homemade symbol you can make. And I had no idea. I am loving it. I feel like I'm in Bali. I can't go to Bali right now, but in my head, I'm in Bali. My, my taste buds are in Bali. Through so how kitchen. can everyone get a hold of you? How can people find you on the internet? So probably the best way is through my Instagram, uh, mm-hmm. Baltimore Home Cook. Um, and I do answer every question that I get. So someone could message me. Um, I do uh, have a link to all my classes and products right in you know, my Instagram, it's a link tree. So you can click on that. You can find where I'm teaching. Um, a lot of people that want to do classes and schedule them on their own will just send me a message and I give them my email, which is uh, lauriefilippi at gmail.com. Philippi is actually my um, legal name. I started practicing law way before I got married. So I stuck with that. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, or just simply message me. I'm also on Facebook as Laurie Boucher, but I don't use Facebook as much as I use Instagram. Awesome. And I'll link to everything um, on, on the show notes so you can get a hold of Laurie. So my last question, if COVID wasn't a thing and you had oodles and oodles and oodles of money, where would you go and what would you eat? Oh, I, I would know. travel to all over Italy. I would travel to Asia. I would travel the world and yeah. I would eat everywhere. I, I love mean, it. I <laughs> love to travel. I spent so much time through both college and law school traveling, which is why at the beginning of the show, I told you I worked uh, waiting tables and bartending mm-hmm. the first five years out of school. I mean, literally my first uh, legal job, I would leave at four o'clock, throw on a uniform, go to a Mexican restaurant that was like two buildings down and uh, all the attorneys and judges would come in for <laughs> happy hour. And I, and I still remember people like sort of doing a double take and, you know, I had to pay for student loans, but yeah. most of my loans were acquired from travel. I knew that was the time to do it. So I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. I got to do a lot of cool things and um, see a lot of things, but I, you know, haven't even scratched the surface. So if funds were not an issue, uh, and I had all the time in the world, I would be packing a bag and traveling everywhere. I love it. Lori, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so, so, so much for taking the time. And I can't wait to cook with you this spring. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I always like an opportunity to talk all things pasta. I hope uh, I answered a lot of questions and anyone has any follow-up questions, reach out to me, but, um, you know, want everyone to be pasta empowered. So thank you. This was a great way to spend my morning. (laughs) Awesome. All right. I'll talk to you soon, Lori. Thanks again. Okay. Bye. Lori, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your love and passion for all things pasta. I've been carbo-loading all week, 
I think everyone else will nail carbo load next week with us. <laughs> anyway, thank you again. I'll put all of Lori's information in the show notes, which can be found on my website, elizabethrfuller.com. If you want to work together or have questions for the podcast, shoot me an email. Let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com. Tag me again in all of your food adventures on Instagram at let's go on a food adventure. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. I'm having a blast doing this and it's all because of you. So thank you again. I'll see you next week. Leave with kindness, make some yummy food together and have some fun. Bye guys. <laughs>